Hello and welcome to Every Life is a Story, a podcast brought to you by the number one befriending agency as part of our new heritage project, made possible by the National Lottery Heritage Foundation. I'm Catherine and I'm a volunteer coordinator here at Number One, helping to deliver our exciting new project. The project aims to build heritage around intergenerational dialogue and intercultural befriending. Storytelling and reminiscing has played a large part in our befriending projects to date, and we are very excited to be able to formally connect spoken accounts of service users and volunteers alike through this project. We're also very excited to be working in collaboration with the Village Storytelling Centre and the Moving Images Archive of the National Library of Scotland through this project. In this series of podcasts, we'll be exploring our guests' own experience with encountering heritage, as well as collecting accounts of their own heritage as it relates to our four main themes, food and drink, gardening and outdoor spaces, living spaces and sleeping areas, and music. Well, I wanted to give you um, poems a variety of poems uh, on the theme of um, gardens and uh, and parks because I know that the this is one of the themes of the um, befriending agencies um, well one 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 of the heritage themes um, and it's actually um, a topic that yields a, a lot of uh, very very interesting poetry um, so I thought we would start with um, a fairly well-known poem by the by the English poet and artist uh, William Morris. He was a very versatile guy, as well as writing poetry. He um, he designed wallpaper, um, designed uh, designed um, the look of books uh, down to down to the um, the layout of the page, uh, and, and 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 so on. So he um, he was a very he was accomplished in. Uh, quite a number of uh, artistic areas. But this poem is called A Garden by the, by the Sea. And um, I think this poem has got um, a dark side to it, as well as possibly <laughs> a bright side. And there's a sense that um, the narrator of the poem has had some, some relationship in the past that was very dear to him. Um, but that that relationship is no more. A Garden by the Sea by William Morris. But William Morris lived in the late 19th century. His dates are 1834 to 96. I think, I think I've got that right. I might be a few years out. A Garden by the Sea by William Morris. I know a little garden close, set thick with lily and red rose, where I would wander if I might from dewy morn to dewy night and have one with me wandering. And though within it no birds sing, and though no pillared house is there, and though the apple boughs are bare of fruit and blossom, would to God her feet upon the green grass trod, and I beheld them as before. There comes a murmur from the shore, and in the close two fair streams are, Drawn from the purple hills afar, drawn down into the restless sea, dark hills whose heath bloom feeds no bee, dark shore no ship has ever seen, tormented by the billows green, whose murmur comes unceasingly unto the place for which I cry, for which I cry both day and night, for which I let slip all delight, whereby I grow both deaf and blind, 
careless to win, unskilled to find, and quick to lose what all men seek. Yet tottering tottering as I am and weak, still have I left a little breath to seek within the jaws of death an entrance to that happy place, to seek the unforgotten face once seen, once kissed, once reft from me, and I the murmuring of the sea. William Morris, A Garden by the Sea. Before we begin, let us introduce our guest in this episode, Tom Hubbard. He is known in the literature sphere as a poet, novelist and scholar. So Tom, to kick things off, being a well-known poet and writer, I'm sure everyone can get to know you with one Google search, but you're the only one who can go into detail about yourself. So, can you tell our listeners more about you and what you do? Right, um... Well, I keep on. Uh, I keep uh, now that I've just had my seventy-second um, birthday. Uh, I keep on trying not to do as little as possible. <laughs> People keep on asking me to do do stuff, which I'm very happy to do. Um, so I'm retired. I should say um, semi-retired. Um, I've been um, a librarian. Um, I was the first librarian of the Scottish Poetry Library, which is based in Edinburgh, but serves the whole of Scotland and uh, and, and beyond. Um, and from there, I, I pursued an academic career. I taught at universities in France and uh, the USA in, in Hungary. Uh, and I've given many lectures at conferences uh, all, all over Europe. Um, I've written novels as well as, as, well as poetry. Um, I just recently um, brought out a book of, of essays on uh, Scottish literature in relation to Europe. Uh, and that was a book of essays which uh, I, I'd been writing over the years since over the well over the past forty years. So uh, they'd appeared in magazines uh, and also a few lectures which I'd written up. So that, it was good to see them, you know, in one set of covers as a as, as a book. So that that book was launched um, very recently. So yeah, that's really impressive and also a belated happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so before we get into the questions, you wanted to put in an icebreaker. So essentially, it's relate still related to heritage and all that, but more casual. So, um, what do you do when you feel a bit? Sorry, what do you do when you feel a bit down? Apart from poetry, how do you channel these emotions and make yourself feel better? Oh right. Um, I think um, when I feel down, the best thing is to write really cheery poetry and pretend that I'm not depressed. <laughs> um, conversely, if I'm feeling too happy, that's when I should write sad poetry. Um, because what goes on what goes on in the poet isn't necessarily um, there on the on the page. Uh, I, I remember coming across um, a comment by a music critic where he said that uh, just because there's pepper in the, in the cook doesn't mean that there's pepper in the soup. Um, yeah, um, I suppose I'm. I tend towards the melancholy, um, but I but I also like to. Um, I also like to make people laugh, so I'm, I'm kind of the the archetypal mel- melancholy clown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's 
That's mm. quite interesting. That's quite ironic, actually, for a writer. And I didn't expect that. Yeah. Oh, I love, I love irony. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what got you into poetry? And who's your favourite poet? Oh, um... Well, I've I've always liked poetry since the age of about ten or eleven, when um, when my gran took me along our high street and um, I bought a couple of poetry books for the first time. I've still got them. Uh, one of them has has fallen to bits. So I've had to do, I've had to do a repair job um, on it, um, but it's still there. In fact, um, for the um, the stuff that I've been doing for the befriending agency, I've uh, I have actually resorted to that 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 book. And um, well, you know, when I was a kid and when I was a when I was a teenager, um, I, wrote, I wrote a lot of rubbish. You know, well, especially when I was a teenager. Most most teenagers, when they write poetry, write write rubbish and think it's think it's great. You know, but then when they enter their twenties and they read it again, they say, "Oh no, did I really? Am I really respond? Did I really perpetrate that?" Um, I didn't seriously start writing poetry until I was well into my thirties, um, by which time um, I had my uh, my degrees, my MA and my PhD from Aberdeen University, um, both behind me. Uh, I had also done a, a diploma in librarianship at Strathclyde University, just up the road from here. Uh, so I think I think my um, my head was clear of academic stuff. And also, I had just become librarian of the Scottish Poetry Library, so I was surrounded by this stuff. So I thought, well, um, why do I not go back to writing it and um, see if I'm any good? <laughs> um, but then my stuff started being accepted by the magazines, and um, <clears throat> I just gradually um, took it took it from there. Although it was a long time before um, I, I had my I published my first book of um, of poetry. I mean, I had had stuff in anthologies as well as magazines, and I'd actually edited anthologies of uh, of poetry. But um, but a book of of my own, just 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 of my own poetry and, and uh, nobody else's. Um, it was quite a while before that that came out, but um, but that was fine. That's just the way that it uh, it worked out. But I mean, there were all, there were all these these interruptions, like um, looking for a job and getting a job, and especially if I was. Um, taking myself off to another country, um, a lot of that got in, got in, got in the way. So, um, you know, I had to, I had to find, I had to find uh, time. Um, I mean, as far as inspiration goes, uh, there's no point in uh, in waiting for it to come. You have to meet it halfway. You have to coax it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you did mention that you had a book of just your anthology of poetry. Um, so I think the, int- the listeners would be interested in reading it. So could you say what the title is of the book? Yeah, the uh, first book was called The Chagall Winnox. Um, that's um, Scots for... Winnox is Scots for, for, for Windows. Um, so the, the poems in that book were entirely in Scots. And um, <clears throat> the title, The Chagall Winnox, The Chagall Windows, takes... Um, that, that title comes from one of the poems... Um, which is about stained glass windows <coughs> in a German church, which were designed by the Jewish artist Mark Chagall. And I was very moved when a friend, uh, I was on a, on a lecture tour in Germany, a friend took me into um, 
this church, St Stephen's Church in Mainz, uh, where I had just given a lecture. And uh, she told me that, um, that this church had been bombed by the Allies uh, during, during the Second World War. And it was just left in, left in a shell. So that when it was uh, rebuilt after the war, um, it was a Jewish artist who was commissioned to design the stained glass windows. And I thought there was something wonderful about that, you know, in the, in the country which um, had seen um, the decimation of, um, of its Jewish population, that a great Jewish artist should contribute to the, um, the reconstruction of, the, of that church. And I was so moved by that that I wrote, I wrote a poem about that um, in Scots. Um, it's, it's since been translated into the Viennese dialect of, uh, of German, which doesn't sound anything like standard German. <laughs> um, so we, in a way, it kind of came home to, you know, at least another German-speaking country, Austria. Um, and then um, various other books of poetry followed in, in quick succession. The next book was called Parapets and Labyrinths, and uh, that's poetry... Um, Entirely in, well, almost entirely in English, but there are a few poems in, in Scots. Yeah, that's very thoughtful, and there's like nuances within your poem. And um, yeah, so we're going to end our icebreaker and move on with the questions directly related to befriending. So, why have you decided to support Number One in this heritage project? Well, um, I was recommended um, to the agency by um, by a good friend of mine, um, the well-known folklorist and singer Margaret Bennett, uh, who teaches at the um, at the conservatoire. And uh, she had recommended me to the the agency um, as someone who could perform um, poetry, um, and well, could be a bit of a of a clown, a melancholy clown. <laughs> Uh, and uh, you know could could perform this stuff, so I, I was I was very happy to um, to to say yes to that. It's it's, it's great fun. Okay. And I just hope that the people people listening to me um, also have fun. Yeah, I'm sure they will. And um, so when we think about heritage, we think about memories and preserving what's been experienced. As a poet or writer, do you think that literary works naturally incorporate heritage? Well, I think um, inevitably. I mean, not all not all poetry does, um, and not all poetry should. I mean, it's up to the um, in the individual writer. Um, but I think there comes a point, maybe in, in all poets, when they're looking not just to their individual past, but to um, to their collective past, the the culture out of which they they've come. They, they, the country or the region of a country um, from, wh- from which they've come and um, poets being I hope sensitive people um, you know are going to be aware of that at, um, at some stage in, 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 the, in their lives and uh, for me um, growing up in, in Fife um, that does have a very rich heritage in terms of um, well, the mining industry, for example, both my grandfathers were went down the pits, and um, also in terms of um, the the national history, I mean, the, the history of Fife is in many ways a kind of microcosm of the history of, uh, of Scotland, uh, with the various palaces and castles that we 
that we have in the in the county, and uh, it's also it also faces the sea, so um, it has a heritage of international trade, trade with the um, the Nordic countries and the and the and the, Bal- the Baltic countries and with uh, with, with the, Nether- the Netherlands, you know all the the various ports along the, the North European coast. Um, so that's that's a rich thing to to draw on. Um, also recently, well, last year became uh, an Irish citizen, um, and I have worked in Ireland. Um, so an awareness of uh, of my ancestry um, is, is part of part of my heritage, you know. And I do and I do work uh, work on that as well. Right. Um, so, how does your literary works explore heritage? Um, I think that. Um, it certainly draws on, probably echoes the um, the Scottish poets of the of the past, um, allu- uh, alludes to them, um, and and there are in in my poetry um, allusions to history, um, to well, just kind of things I've, I've been been talking about, uh, also to the other arts, to to, to painting and uh, music and um, and architecture. As you know, Scotland is a country teeming with different cultures. How do you think this intermingling of different cultures affects heritage? I think it enriches enriches it. I mean, the more cultures that we have in in Scotland, um, the better. Um, the more complex and the more the more the more varied, um, the more exciting. I think uh, our our culture uh, becomes. Um, you know, so we have the indigenous Scots and uh, Gaelic uh, her- heritage, um, but then you know we've had so many people from other cultures um, coming into um, the country: um, Poles, Italians, Irish, um, Chinese, um, Asian uh, from the, the Asian sub- subcontinent. Um, Jewish people. I mean, there was once a very strong Jewish presence in in, the, in this very city. Um, I mean, Jewish people, I think, in in Glasgow and in Scotland generally have become more, more kind of assimilated to the uh, to the general um, popul- population. Um, and I think that's that's a very rich mix. I mean, there is, um, for example, I mean, there is um, a Scottish Jewish. Novelist called J. D. David Simons, who was actually on the telly recently, and he was talking about growing up in Glasgow um, as a as a Jewish person and the whole culture of the of the synagogues. And um, I think in his work, there's a wonderful blend of both um, Scottish humour and uh, and Jewish humour uh, coming together as they they come, they come together naturally. Because I think. You know, as a non-Jewish person, uh, Scottish the Scottish sense of humour and the Scottish the, the Jewish sense of humour have have got a lot in common. Quite dry and uh, surreal and zany at times. Well, that's a really lovely answer. And um, to add a caveat, the next question is a bit of a weird one. But um, if you could choose to put one thing out of all the memories you've got in a time capsule that would be read after fifty years, what would it be? Ooh, um, I have one poem um, which I can I can give you just now. It's from my um, most recent 
collection of uh, poetry and prose. It's um, a book that was published a couple of years ago, right in the middle of the pandemic, so um, it couldn't have a proper book launch at the time. Um, but it's been recently launched. Um, it's called the, the Devil and Michael Scott, and uh, it's a kind of um, idiosyncratic tour of my county, um, Fife, um, especially the coast, but um, it, it goes inland every 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 so often. Um, I wanted to do a book which would um, celebrate um, the rich cultures of um, of my county, and uh, I did draw on um, on a memory of when I was uh, fifteen or sixteen, and um, you know how teenagers have strange crazies, strange enthusiasms. Um, well, mine was uh, an obsession with, um, well, gardens. Not so much the flowers. I'm terribly ignorant on flowers. I just could not tell one flower, one plant from, from another. That is, that is a confession. But I was obsessed with uh, buildings in gardens. Um, the more eccentric, uh, the better. You know, things like temples. Greek temples and uh, fake ruins, um, Gothic um, Gothic arches and, uh, and follies, you know, buildings which had no obvious use, <laughs> um, but were there um, as a kind of uh, attraction to visitors to the to, to the to these gardens. You know, by by, by it was just their, their their very uselessness and sometimes even ugliness um, could 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 be fascinating. Anyway, there was this um, park in uh, in Fife called Craigtoon Park, which um, used to be a great favourite with kids, and it's it's been it had got run down quite a bit. It was in decay, and uh, they did a bit of restoration on it, but it still looks a bit it still looks a bit shabby. But again, that's all part of the that's all part of the attraction. And I had this uh, thing about the um, so-called Italian gardens in a very, very dark and sinister corner of uh, Craigtoon Park. Uh, and I was there with my mother um, when, I, when I was 15. And, um, and, I, and I just loved this place. Uh, but my mother thought it was, it, was, it was very sinister. And she wondered why I was so obsessed with this, this place. It was dark and spooky. And, um, you know, she thought I was... Um, a bit morbid, you know. She's, can you not get interested in girls instead, <laughs> instead of all this stuff? Anyway, this um, from my from my book, The Death of Michael Scott. Here's this um, little um, excerpt from uh, from a poem which refers to the um, the Italian garden in uh, Craigtoon Park, and uh, the first line is is recounts um, a number of place names in Fife, and I think these place names are. These very place names are poems in themselves. You know, like, I like the sound of them. Craig Rothy, series to Pitscotty. A family trip to Craigtoon Park, its Italian garden in a wooded nuke, where, in the moonlight, sculpted stones leaned like stacks of brittle bones with gaping gods in their alcoves, nettles entwined in forgotten groves, Terraces and balustrades collapsing into heaps of fungoid deliquescence that gave my mum the creeps, as if grotto were the essence of grotty. 
On the other hand, it suited me for my morbid teenage sensibility to delight in each drop-jawed ornamental spook, silent, ominous and stark. So this very sad corner of this park, it's this uh, Italian garden. I mean, the people who had um, designed designed it, I mean, obviously had studied um, Italian uh, garden um, architecture. Um, but I think for for, uh, for most people, <laughs> except for me, it was really rather sad that uh, it had fallen into, into, into decay. Yeah, that is a really lovely poem and I like how you try to juxtapose your thoughts with your mom's and it's like really graphic as well. And yeah, so we move on to the next question. So we would like to talk more about the key themes that help angle our exploration of heritage, food and drink, living spaces and garden, gardening and music. So um, we've We've already talked about gardening, so we could just move on to, do you have any memories about your family and friends revolving around, um, well, gardening as well, that you would like to share? <laughs> yeah. I don't think my parents were really very successful in, um, in the garden. They, um, I remember at our house, they, um, they tried to grow rhubarb, um, but it was a complete disaster because they had a poodle who peed on it. Um, and uh, I don't think that would have done very much for the flavour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I remember the the um, the, the soil in my uh, grandmother's uh, garden was was very very dark, um, and it was it was near a coal mine. So I think that maybe explained the, um, the particular sombre texture of the. Um, of of the soil which uh, which which I, which which I helped out in. Moving on to living spaces, how do you think living spaces feed into your heritage? Do you think the environment you live in shapes who you are as a person? Like that, which ties in with mm. your poem earlier. Yeah. I think very definitely. Um, I mean, you know, to a certain extent, we make our own environment. Um, well, I mean, you know, things like the um, Italian garden. I mean, that's obviously um, an artificial um, ingredient in in a garden. Um, so, you yeah, in 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 a garden or a park, you have this sort of mixture of the the artificial and the and the natural, the flowers and the plants, and uh, and so on. You know, the, the the artificial side of it is the environment that we that we make for ourselves. You know, we have this phrase, the built environment which encompasses architecture, um, sculpture. Um, you know, we have a number of so-called new towns in Scotland, places like Glenrothes and Cumbernauld, um, where um, they have employed town artists to create um, interesting features in what might otherwise be a very, very boring um, architectural environment. You know, because I mean, the, the the buildings, the houses in these towns are really not really all that interesting. You know, the people who live in them do, do try to make them as interesting as possible. You know, and to the extent that they can have a garden, um, that gives that gives them more freedom to, you know, put their individual stamp on it. But a town artist can design sculptures um, to offset the boring architecture. 
And, um, you know, Glenrothes is a town which is very neat, very near us. And um, there are all sorts of quirky um, sculptures there which which uh, amuse the um, the population. I mean, there's, uh, uh, there's giant hippos. Um, <laughs> artificial, artificial hippopotami and uh, uh, giant uh, toadstools, um, you know, which appear, uh, you know, when you come around a corner and they just seem so quirky the the way that the, the way that they are. So they add a bit of fun to what might otherwise be, you know, a pretty boring um, environment. But if we make our own environment, our environment in turn um, makes us. So um, I think that maybe our personalities are maybe shaped in ways that we don't, we're not really conscious of uh, to make us um, delighted or uh, or depressed. Um, and I think certainly, you know, when we go into a, a park or a garden, I think, I think our, our hearts are, are lightened, you know. Um, maybe even at this time of the year with the, with the, the sight of autumn leaves, um, autumn leaves are, are associated with sadness, you know, because it represents the death of the of the of the year, and the, the plants dying. Um, but it, but but that too can be um, can be a delight, you know, the the, the varied the various varied colours of the um, of the leaves. You know, and I, I lived in America, in Connecticut, where um, you get this glorious blaze of colour. In the in the autumn, in the in the fall, as they as they call it, uh, you know, just the sheer variety of colour in the um, in, in in the leaves there. Um, you know, I think if we live in an environment where where there's there's no not much sign of nature, I think that does affect people people's moods. And when I'm thinking of uh, of gardens, um, I think you know during the pandemic, there were just so many people who did not have a garden of their own. And um, so they would feel they would feel very much very hemmed in, you know, within within walls. They, they couldn't get out. You know, we weren't, we weren't allowed. People weren't allowed to to go out. Um, and uh, but when there was a bit more freedom allowed, people who did not have gardens could at least visit a public park. And that belongs to everyone, and uh, in a public park. There's even more space than there would be in any one person's uh, garden. So I think an awful lot of people felt a sense of liberation once they could get out to, um, you know, a really um, gorgeous uh, park. And Glasgow's blessed with um, with, ma- with with many many parks like Kelvin Grove and Queens Park and uh, and so on. So I think it must have been. More than just a relief, I think it must have been uh, an absolute delight uh, to get out there among among nature for the for the first time in in months. Yeah, so I agree with you. Like um, foliage definitely adds a bit of colour to buildings, and like sculptures as well, just makes them stand out more. And like the colour green in itself, just have this sense of calmness to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So our last question. What food and drink would you recommend the listeners to try out and how does it tie in with heritage for you? Well, uh, being a Scot and an Irishman, um, I have to recommend whiskey. Scottish and Irish whiskey are, are very different. The best Scottish whiskies have a, have, have a taste of peat, um, which is 
a great delight. Um, Irish whisky tends to be much much smoother in taste. But, uh, I like I like the variety. And as far as food is concerned, um, well, I suppose I have to say this: the haggis is um, much to, much to be recommended. Um, I once uh, I once uh, brought a haggis into the into the USA because my colleagues just before the Christ- Christmas break, I was teaching at the University of Connecticut. They wanted me to do um, a presentation of Scottish poetry and Scottish cooking because uh, well, I, I do most of the cooking at home. Because I, I learned to cook when I got married. I mean, I, I was hopeless at cooking when I was a student. I mean, I just eat any old rubbish. But uh, uh, and I found I got hooked. You know, once I studied a few recipe books, um, I found that I could, you know, use use my imagination. So they wanted me to bring a haggis back uh, from from Scotland um, and across the Atlantic again. So um, I landed at uh, the airport in New York. And, um, and I see that I have my haggis ready because I know that I'm going to have to declare it um, at the Department of Agriculture at the um, the customs. So there's this conveyor belt, and there's this um, quite formidable-looking lady in a uniform um, who does not smile. Uh, put the haggis on the conveyor belt. I think we'll have to see something something about this thing. What's this? She says. I say, oh, it's it's a haggis. Uh, says, what's in it? So I start to tell her the ingredients of uh, of the haggis. Just go on, go on. She doesn't want to hear any more. <laughs> Are you going to read another poem? Yeah. The Austrian poet Rainer Maria Rilke spent some time um, at a Swedish castle called the Borgivugard, and uh, he writes this poem about um, about the park in the in in the castle. Again, it's a wee bit like the William Morris poem that um, that I read earlier, in that there's a hint of um, some love relationship in the past, which um, in this park kind of. Um, Revives the memory of that of that relationship. It's been tra- it's been translated by the Irish poet Derek Mahon, Borgabu God by Rainer Maria Rilke. Two paths diverge in a favourite northern park. You hesitate, step out with renewed vigour. Go down the mistier, more mysterious one, and for a minute or two you're in the dark. But you come to a clearing at a mouldy stone inscribed to the memory of Sophie Briga. She pours like powder from your crumbling fist. Why does she rouse this never-failing interest? What is it about this place that you explore damp glades the other visitors ignore? While you malinger at the sunlit, sunlit rose, what are you listening for? What distant voices? Why do you watch with such bewildered eyes the cabbage whites around the lilac bushes? I think there's a certain similarity of theme with uh, with my poem about the Italian garden. You know, in that um, you have this question. You know, why is it that the 
that the poet is interested in this particular place that nobody else visits. You know, why does he have an obsession with this particular corner of the of the park? Well, it's it's suggested it's because of this um, this lady he may have felt something for in the in the past. That was amazing. Thank you so much, Solomon. It's, lo- um, it's really lovely to meet you. Would you like a couple more? Yes. This is an extract from, um, just a few extracts from, from a long poem by Jerry Luce. Um, Jerry, Jerry Luce uh, used to live in Glasgow, um, and I think that Jerry is a guy that um, the befriending agency uh, really, needs to, really needs to recruit. Uh, because what he knows about poetry and gardening and, hagri- and horticulture uh, is not worth knowing. He's both an accomplished poet and um, an enthusiastic gardener. And, um, well, he knows all about horticulture, and that's, that's the really serious stuff. He, was, um, he used to be the poet in residence at the Botanic Gardens here in, here in Glasgow. And uh, a number of his poems uh, are inscribed in, in various parts of the Botanic Gardens. Um, well, for example, the, the Kirkley, Kirkley Bridge. And um, these are just a few few couplets from this, this long poem. And what I like about this is that gardens for him represent a place where you can just empty yourself out of all sorts of hang-ups about things that, you, that, you, that, you, that you're supposed to do. Just relax. Don't, don't, bo- don't bother about all this stuff. You know, just... Um, just get rid of all that baggage. Here doing what I do best. Weeding, reading, drinking. Tax bills, deadlines, work undone. I plan a seat round the sycamore. Woodpeckers drumming, lap wings, wings lapping all the way. Autumn leaves gathering corners. Doing nothing, most gets done. Such a small beetle. Passes so easily across the written lines I labour over. He adds a wee note about this. And I quote Jerlus. The dear path um, the dear path to my door poems are written at my small wooden hut at Carbeth in the foothills of the Campsies. An unmanaged area, largely untouched for a century. The hut has no electricity. And drinking, wa- and drinking water is collected from a standpipe that a bend in the road nearby. It's where I feel most at home. That is, where I'm able to form my for I'm, where I'm able to forget myself. They're poems of what is, beyond excuses made for the things not done, far from worlds of doing. So, you just hang out, and just rela- relax. You know. Um, just a final one. Well, we're in autumn now, and I don't think any of us are looking forward to um, the winter with all the extra hassle we're going to be having this uh, this winter with uh, heating bills and, and, and so on. Um, Walter Perry is a Scottish poet who, well, he's very intellectually sophisticated. He studied philosophy at Edinburgh University. Um, he's, he's been a poet going way back to the, the 1970s he's lived in, um, lived in Edinburgh um, but I think he got to the point where he'd, he's, he had just had enough of the big city and he now lives in Perthshire in, a, in, a, in the small town of Dunning in the, um, 
the valley of um, Strathairn. This is a poem which, um, as I say, when it's intellectually sophisticated, but this is a very simple poem. And uh, it's about when, uh, you know, we're, fa- we're facing the, the winter, the year is dying, but we can look beyond that. It's in Scots. Money's a summer. Summer meaning summer. Money's a summer I hae seen, and money's a winter storm. Dear to the hearts, the cheery hearth, and we'll kent form. But here's a gate that winna steek, Whate'er cold blast old winter fling, Wit though the nicht is lang, black, bleak, The garden I remember spring. What though the night is long, black and bleak, The garden always remembers spring. So we've got that to look forward to. That is amazing. Thank you so much. Um, it's lovely to meet you, Tom. Lovely to meet you. Thanks for listening to episode two of the number one befriending agency's heritage podcast. It was written and presented by Nicole Mallar. It was recorded by Nathan Chung. You have been listening to Every Life is a Story, a podcast brought to you by the number one befriending agency as part of our new heritage project made possible by the National Lottery Heritage Foundation. To learn more about the project, please visit our website www.befriend.org.uk or follow us on our social media we'll put the links in the description finally we would like to say thank you to the national lottery players without whom the project would not be possible see you next time